Hello and welcome to Active Listeners with Mike and Shane. Each week, we will discuss our lives, our goals, and our expectations as artists, as well as discuss what it is to be an artist. Performers, visual artists, and musicians, Mike and I would like to talk to you about what you do, why you do it, and what that art really means to you. We'll have guests to discuss artistic expression and the all-around nature of the artist's lifestyle. Is there a de facto artist lifestyle? Well, that's one of the things we're going to uncover. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and join in on the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Active Listeners with Mike Lake and Shane Sespankowski. Last names this episode. Okay. I know. I Thanks for it. joining us for week two. We are here today to talk about art activism. What is that? I'm not completely sure. And you know what? That's going to happen from time to time. And that is why we bring on guests like our next guest, Christoph Maria, local of Troy, New York, also goes by the name of Ragliacci Rags, the musical pachinko clown. And that is a tongue twister. It is a tongue twister. I love it, though. It's it's also perfect for his clown sona. I know that's not a thing, but a while back, for you nerds out there, there was some talk of spider sonas when they, they redid the Spider Universe, Spider-Man Universe for the third time. Anyway, our guest, Rags, is going to talk about his experiences with activism, his experiences with art, and his experiences with art activism. Because I'm going to be the one editing this episode, I think Mike will be surprised how much of that makes it into uh, the intro. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, um, Shane edits are going to definitely be more meta than Mike edits. And that's okay. That's part of the journey. Yeah. And I am yeah. okay with that. I thought about adding cha-ching sounds in our last one. So. Oh boy, we're going to get sound effects. I mean... I was thinking about it. I don't hate that. Tell us what you think, audience. Should we add some sound effects? A little bit more production? Okay, enough of our ridiculousness. We would like to introduce our friend, clown, art activist, Ragliacci Rags. All right, listeners. Here we are with our guest for this evening. Our very good friend... Rags, Ragliachi Rags is is his his stage name, but uh, he's he's a very very dear friend of ours, Christy Maria. How are you doing, buddy? Howdy, I'm doing real well. It's really nice to be here with you, active listeners. <laughs> we appreciate you taking the time out to have a conversation with us tonight. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of noise out there. You know, really deep listening, active listening is really important practice. Absolutely, and today we want to actively listen to some of the things that you have to say specifically about art and activism. We both are, I, I would say, politically conscious individuals. Traditional politics tend to be such that the direct action is, is often left out. And we would like to talk to you a little bit, give our audience a little insight into who you are. Start, we have all of our, our guests start with their pronouns and a little bit of information that they would like to share. So go ahead. Ah, all right. Well, yeah. Hey, y'all, Christoph or Rags or Raliachi, if you prefer. Uh, as far as pronouns go, I use none, any, or all. So in other words, really make it up as you go along. See me how you see me. I identify as someone who is uh, non-binary or fluid um, and uh, certainly appreciate the experimentation with language around that. Uh, so feel free. Something about me. Uh, well. Make it interesting now. <laughs> no, no pressure, no pressure, no pressure, no pressure, no pressure. I am, well, most recently I've come to the understanding that I work best interpersonally, as I was just talking to Shane. Um, I have experienced the need to be around people in the flesh. And I've got to say that I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have that in a, in a very visceral way uh, with a new person in my life who, uh, you know, I had no idea could even be possible 
during this time. A lot of people have been asking me what I've been up to, and it's like, I'm in love. That's awesome. I've just, you know, you're like, you're like, well, can you do these? Can you do all these things? What about this? What about that? What about this? What about all these actions? And I'm like, well, hold on a second. I'm actually experiencing physical intimacy. And, and it's caused me, I guess the interesting part here is that's caused me to think about the way in which you can interact with your whole community and with the whole world in terms of like what intimacy is interpersonally, what intimacy is with material, with community, with knowledge. And as I was talking to Shane right before we got into this podcast was about how also being around people, I think there are all these extrasensory markers you know, or subsensory markers, I suppose. If we think about pheromones, uh, body language, there's so much we perceive from being next to somebody or close to somebody that it's like actually really hard to uh, to understand the full tone or context of what somebody's Absolutely. saying without that experience. I mean, I know that when we started this episode, I was a little nervous because I haven't seen rags in so long. And while it's wonderful to see you on a digital screen, this has only made me want to smell you. <laughs> ah, I was just going to ask you what you smelled like. It's perfect. This is, yes, these are the things we need to know. I just, I really, COVID has taught us all, I think, a lot of things. And one of them is, at least for me personally, how important that physical interaction is. I'm very much an introvert myself. The idea of being alone, I thought, was going to be a dream. And then I started to miss the pats on the back, the handshakes, the hugs from people from work, you know, those small things you start to take advantage of. Uh, I will no longer take advantage of those things. I would identify as an extrovert. And I think one of the people that I was always sure to never go too long without checking on is uh, my buddy Rags here. Because I knew, <laughs> I knew it was going to be rough for him. Um <laughs> Come on, man. I just need some people. Just give me... I need it. I need it. Got any more of those people? My favorite things about this podcast is going to be that undirected solicitation of information. Just like, hey, tell us something about yourself. You know? Even though I've known you for years, I, I kind of felt like I was getting to know something new about you that I didn't know before. So that's great. And so now I also know that from our discussions, you, you, uh, you've been really busy this summer despite all this... That almost sounds like a segue to the topic of our episode, Mike. <laughs> a little bit, a little pew, bit. Pew, yeah. pew, pew, pew. Have you guys done this before? Is that? <laughs> Don't want to brag, but this is our third time. Whoop, whoop. Yep, yep. We're uh, old pros now. Rule three, uh, baby. Rule three. It's how the magic happens. Mike introduced the fact that you have been busy this summer. There have been a lot of reasons to be active, vocally, physically, emotionally. I know that a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, have heard of activism in one form or another. But from what I understand, what you bring to the table is a form of art activism. Would you mind diving into that or delving into that and kind of explaining what that is? Sure. I love that idea. Um, I might argue that all art activism in some form but let's let's Please break do. down <laughs> let's break down the double a here the art activism into a few different things so you know i think we got to start with what activism is you know because that's a term that i think comes really charged for a lot of folks and certainly seems to be associated with particular political affiliations especially right now you know like if i just say to someone randomly on the street like describe an activist to me you know what, what are the chances they're going to be describing someone that we might identify as like left-leaning, radical, you know, involved um, with some kind of environmental organization or political organization? But like we have to realize that activism is simply the, the praxis of affecting any society through committing actions. So it's not theory, it's practice. I know at my job, but most certainly I ask people what activism is and the response I get is most often a discussion of Black Lives Matter or Antifa. Um, as you said, it's become an ideology for the left when it shouldn't be, I guess. <laughs> well, I just think it's it's an accessible form of dialoguing with the society around you, regardless of what your affiliations are. You know, I'm glad in a lot of ways that 
the people who are taking ownership of activism as a practice and activism as as a, a mode of engagement as an idea uh, are the folks who I also align with in terms of their their desire to topple structural violence and oppressive systems. But yeah, I mean, essentially as an individual or as part of a group or a larger organization, you know, you're embodying what your held beliefs and values are and working with them to establish significant changes, whether that's in thought, policy, the representation of you or whatever it is you're talking about, and of course, creating experiences. Where the art comes in, I mean, it's literally had a dialogue with activism kind of since its inception, right? It informed people about an idea or a concept and created. If we go to the Lascaux cave paintings, right? Someone's painting some animals. You know, in some ways, I don't know if we would call it activism specifically, but it was like, hey, there's animals we can eat over there. And it informed and created this narrative that allowed people to take uh, further action on, on how they wanted to survive. And art, at the end of the day, whether it's theater, poetry, music, performance, art, graffiti, I mean, there's so many different you know, ways to define anything as art. It's it's always, to me, some good art. Good art. Good art. What is that? <laughs> to me, I feel satisfied experiencing art if it's challenged me some way, if it's questioned, if it's commented on the context it exists in. So art activism, you know, for me, is the application of that art to provoke and specifically use as a resource to bring about those changes in society as desired by the artists and or the communities they represent. I would have never thought cave paintings, you know? You teach me things endlessly. You know, it's it's art on a wall to invoke people to go over there and eat and survive. Right, right. It has purpose. It has intent. It wasn't just I mean, I'm sure there was an aesthetic aspect, like, whoa, I'm struck by the movement of these creatures. I'm sure, you know, these original cavemen were probably using lots of $10 words, talking about the form and the perspective and the contour of the line. No. <laughs> they were like, cool, food there. And uh, it was effective. I mean, it's interesting because throughout history, you know, there's just tons of examples of what I would define as art activism. And some of them are passive and some of them are very active. And what I mean by that is some are experienced and participated in, some are merely observed. So like, for example, Picasso's Guernica, right? This uh, very famous like cubist painting by Picasso about the Spanish Civil War. Just by looking at that painting, you understand Picasso's interpretation of an event that, especially for Spaniards, has like deep emotional, political significance, challenges their identity. And like, there it is. Now you see it and you have to face it. And that's going to certainly affect the way you're thinking about it, whether it at least calls it up, if nothing else. And then probably a lot of the thoughts afterwards and maybe even inspires discussion among the people that you're observing it with or other people who have seen it. Right. That's that's another uh, benefit. You mentioned something that makes me uh, kind of think of some of the ways that we don't or or maybe that we do as as creatives in the world of of making statements with art. For the listeners, all three of us are active members, um, participating members of Wilkem's Players. Ooh, spoiler alert. Yes, yes. We've talked about this a little bit uh, on the show, but in a little bit more in depth, we are a worker owned cooperative theater troupe out of Troy, New York, that in itself is a little bit of an, of a, of a statement of an activist statement kind of in uh, how we decided to structure. But what you specifically mentioned is your comments about all art really being activism. And I think that's interesting. Uh, something that I know Shane has mentioned before is that if, if we aren't as artists, commenting on the world around us what are we even really doing personally like as as we're making our work and doing our work you know i i i know i feel that i'm I, and you've already kind of expressed the same sentiment i feel more accomplished as an artist when it's when i'm saying something that i believe in man you just you brought up so many things that we could be here for a while and i'm and i'm down uh, for we it we could be and that's fine <laughs> sorry in advance you're welcome it's fine it's like fine. 
Well, well, it's funny that you talked about Will Kemp's in the sense that like it's not even just the art that we make, right? The thing that you share, it's the process by which we do it that could be also yeah. seen as activism because like the community and the way that we make that theater happen is uh, representative of our beliefs and values and things we want to change and see more manifested in the world. Would you actually mind kind of tapping into how Will Kemp's is run as that community? Because I... I imagine many of our listeners uh, assume a pretty standard business model of hierarchies uh, when it's a little bit different for Will Kemp's. Yeah. So I think in order to talk about that, um, cue Sandy Boynton. No, you have to talk about <laughs> um, what Shakespeare's sharing company would have been like in, in the Elizabethan era, which was essentially that uh, members in the theater company that had stake you know, so you're not just talking about Shakespeare, you're talking about Burbage, you're talking about Henry Condell, you're talking about a number, Will Kemp, you know, where we derive our name from, that they had stake, which I think would make sense to a lot of people now, like a shareholder, but they also accomplished a lot of other duties in addition to their specialty, right? Shakespeare's a playwright and also sometimes an actor, but as an administrator as well. Burbage is like the venue owner. And of course, they shared the profits. So in other words, it wasn't like a producer who like rakes in the money. I mean, I have no idea how they broke it down or if they did or if it was totally egalitarian. I don't have that information. But we know that whatever they made, whether it was through patronage or probably, you know, the pennies that were thrown at the globe, they shared them. And they also shared the duty of responsibility. So if we think about it, it was a cooperative or collaborative effort rather than a top-down hierarchical model. And from what I understand, the breakdown was based on the jobs you took on. The more jobs you took on, the more shares you were were given from that piece of the pie. Mm, so it's a meritocracy in that sense. Yeah. Or really, a, a like, how much do you want to saddle yourself with and we'll pay you for your pains? Oh, well, Will Kemp's doesn't work like that, because if that was the case, well, we'd all be millionaires and dead. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, uh, to bring it to the modern era, we are we are a functioning uh, cooperative, which essentially means uh, a same thing. You know, one member, one vote. It's egalitarian in the sense that no one person has more authoritative or administrative say than another. And that we actually do share the uh, profits, our very minuscule profits, <laughs> with one another. And, of course, we decide mostly to reinvest that in the company so that it can continue doing the good work it does, bringing Shakespeare and other theater to the people uh, for free or, lo or no cost, low cost. And, of course, yeah, we all have several, several jobs. The other thing that I wanted to bring up that you guys made me think of was that when you were like, yeah, all art is activism. I was like, yeah, but what about fucking Andy Warhol, right? Like Campbell's soup cans is activism. And then you're like, yes, actually. Yeah. Because yeah. um, the consumerism right. and all that. And then that made me think, okay, right. So there's his commentary on consumer culture under, you know, like American capitalism. And then I was like, but what about those artists who are just commercial artists, who just make things that look cool because they sell well? They're kind of activists in a way, but for the people that they serve, they're activists for profit. Like they are, by their work, proselytizing the idea that that model works for them, that that philosophical model of like get interest, make profit works for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As a co I do commission art on the side and, and – um... That's actually something that I was over in my head as I was saying it, uh, trying to, you know, quantify. And I think you're right. I think it's it's there's always um, a thing. If it's a product, if it's an idea in the interest of telling a story, creating there's always there's always something in the in the professional world of creating an artistic thing that, yeah, you're you're saying something, whether it's break down the establishment or it's you know buy this can of soup <laughs> or don't buy this can of soup it's for my family yes it's for my family that can of soup is for my family i also wonder how much of that falls on a community of artists supporting other artists uh you know you you make that thing even if it doesn't have much use an artist made it and as an artist, I want to support that other artist. I have a picture of a cat in a space suit on my wall. 
we could argue that has no value other than I wanted to buy it because it's a cat in a freaking spacesuit. Except that cats are alien interlopers who have come here to be our overlords in ancient times. And in this times. episode of Ancient Aliens. <laughs> I thought it was dolphins, sorry. Yeah. No, they just said so long and thanks for all the fish, to quote Douglas Adams. 42 all day. Now we're really going deep. The podcast people are going to be like, wait, now they're a science fiction? They're a science fiction podcast? What are they talking about? <laughs> what kind of activism are you doing right now? I mean, you know, I not right this second because <laughs> we're recording a podcast. Well, in some ways, though, right? Like, this is this is me sharing some of my story and perspective and conversation with you guys, and that's going to get to listeners, and they're going to receive it and do with it what they will. I mean... Right, like I feel like activism is literally like a life praxis. Like you can't just be like I'm gonna wake up and do activism. It's like no, no, no. Do you kind of like live, eat, breathe this? You don't want to be presentational with your activism. You know, it does have to be something that's deep seated within yourself. I I think so. I think you have to be committed to it because otherwise, what are you doing? Then you're performing it for for an end. Right. It's like the reason why this is happening is because people want to live a certain way. They believe or think a certain way and feel a certain way. And the things around them are preventing that from happening. And that's why they get up in arms and come out against it. It's like a lot of people are like, hey, we're just trying to live well over here and let everybody else live well. Or, hey, we haven't been able to live well for a really long time and we'd really like to. Maybe we'd just like to stop being killed in the streets. You know, maybe we would like to undo centuries of aggressive systemic sure. uh, manipulation. You know, there are so many things, but like... The masks, Chris. We don't want to wear the masks. That's right. That's right. We don't want to wear the masks. See, it's lately been been from both, both perspectives of the aisle, right? <laughs> I thought you were talking about the metaphysical mask, not the actual COVID mask. Sure, sure. Course. It's kind of both. So like as a clown, right? So your listeners, if they don't know, I am a I'm a professionally trained pochinko clown. Um, and, you know, we can talk about that some other time. But, uh, you know, the idea of the mask in that tradition is not that it hides you. It's that the aspects of the mask, because you make seven of them. The aspect of the mask is that it brings out what's inside of you. So it's revelatory rather than obfuscating. You're Batman. I was just going to say that. <laughs> exactly, though. Exactly. So, like, it's kind of funny because, like, your choice to wear or not wear a mask is very telling about how you've politicized in your own mind the health crisis or, like, how you embody your own beliefs and values. And, like, that action says actually a lot about you. Um, and it's also funny to watch, like, a whole bunch of people be really, really gung-ho about it and then, like, forget to put it on or, mm -hmm. you know, feel comfortable uh, not wearing it. It's, like, so interesting. It's a beautiful mess. And it's and it's a lot about perception, um, which I don't know why it flashed me to this thing we spoke about weeks and weeks ago. But we were talking about activism on the front lines, uh, marching in the streets and, and being the face, I don't know, being the person in a space, the, the news system that we're so entrenched in highlights the negativity of those marches so often that what you were looking to do, or at least that you were talking about was confronting the police on the front lines with music by singing, uh, because by doing that, it's hard for a news outlet to say, look at these violent protesters. And instead, it's look at these people saying a very profound thing that we should have been listening to for hundreds of years. Yeah. I mean, now, don't get me wrong. Like, there's we cannot discount angry folks like there's a lot of justified anger there's there's just anger and there's a, there are good reasons for it there are not good reasons for it whatever people are angry and they have a right to be angry and to show up and be angry about it in public um and i support that i fully support that the hard part right is exactly what you said that that content can be put in a different frame by the media or by certain politicians and be telling a story that may or may not resemble the story that was actually happening. And that's where you get this whole rioting, looting, um, you know, paradigm, which first of all is probably happening in some places. Yeah. But also like 
if you know you were stolen from for your entire life generations and generations ago i think uh you know a little looting is totally justified i'm not gonna lose sleep over a burned down target no no and in fact you know like if if you had jumped the gun and just started like giving that shit away and like thinking about how you know corporate entities could be mutual aid i mean you could see this whole thing flipped on its head imagine if the fear of rioting looting was so great that it turned them around to say, what can we do to prevent it? But that's not what happens in this country because the idea of preventing is invested in security and security is about protecting private property and the people who are inside of it or own it. And it's not about like ameliorating the problem. It's sometimes about mollifying. Like sometimes it's about trying to pacify the, the crowd. I find that because of what the topic of this current moment is um being so polarizing for this particular moment being race specifically and it's just too easy for power to draw lines and create teams and because that's because that's what american politics is all about it's it's teams it's the super bowl baby we have election day and you know the 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 people on the news the talking heads get to give us all the play-by-plays and the strategies and so we all pick a side and it's it's rah rah go red or blue and when it's when it the levers of power control both of those organizations it's it's always going to be the less powerful that are are oh look at them behaving the way they're behaving whether it's BLM or anti-maskers, it's it's these people that are not the people you should be listening to who are us on the screen. And it's, you know, it's, it's the people. Americans in general have, have this, this obstacle, which is the fallacy of binary thinking. It's like everything is always put into us and them, red and blue, black and white. It's like always one or the other and once you start to talk about how, you know, either they have more in common than they do apart or how much complexity there is within that, you know, people's brains start to break and the media can't really handle that. And that's societally white people are trained to consider themselves individuals. We are we are unique and we are not part of the problem. The problem might exist, but it's not because of me. And I find that is what halts a lot of the conversations for me when I sort of attempt to have those conversations it's oh I don't need to have that conversation because I'm not part of that problem I've got black friends exactly exactly <laughs> oh god no stop that, that uh. <laughs> so I gotta tell you all right recent aside here I just read a Ta-Nehisi Coates book called Between the World and Me, which I... It's so good. Ah, it's so good. Let me write that down. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, Between the World and Me. It is, um, it's essentially an open letter to his son, uh, who's, a young, who's a young man, and about how the situations that Tom Nehisi went through and the experiences that he had and how that relates to him parenting. And he, like, breaks apart his college experience. I mean, there's so much. Mike, you've read the book, so... And I don't want to necessarily explain it for the readers, except, uh, listeners, except to say that they should read it. I definitely encourage you to. Because one of the things that I found interesting that was posed in there is the idea of whiteness as a false social construct, right? Like, to me, Ta-Nehisi in that book was arguing specifically that white isn't even real. Like, the people, like, yes, there was a conglomerate of people who, like, agreed to that and then created a life around that, and that life began to perpetuate itself, and then people inherited it, like myself, like you, Shane, like all of us, really, to some degree, have inherited or embodied some bit of white privilege. Like, but it ain't real. It's not there. It's become a commodity that has been traded over time. If you can earn this level of whiteness in your society you are well and you have access to all of the resources that are exploited and plundered by that concept right it's like and choosing to give that up would be a really radical act for a lot of folks i'm getting kind of tired of this notion of like white guilt and white what do we do and just tell us what to do it's like decolonize yourself stop thinking the way that they've trained you to think stop thinking that you're still stuck in that paradigm it's like if you realize that you're an individual but your identity comes from other things and you start to divorce yourself from the markers of the identity that are tied to like money that was gotten in in bad way in oppressive ways or systems that are oppressive like you can connect with other people and you can like 
I don't know. I don't know if this is a word that we could say, but like you could, you could disenwhite yourself, perhaps. I will certainly start using that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many levels to this, and I guess maybe in a way to kind of interject a little bit more of the topic, we did also see over the summer some fairly, if I'm being curt, some fairly empty examples of our activism, right? I mean, how many cities in the United States painted several blocks of their streets with Black Lives Matter, you know, and and the cynic in me was just all too present and maybe maybe that's just a lifetime of being politically let down but like it it was just like you know dnc showing up on the floor oh wearing the african west african yeah, scarves like it's give me just a break like, it's it's again it's performative for corporations for us and i mean speaking of corporations i i sort of struggle with that balance as well of okay they got rid of Aunt Jemima syrup, that's fantastic. But what was asked for was to stop killing black people in <laughs> in the streets. Like that's you're yeah. you're performing this activism, which is great. It's something that should be done, but that's not the end of the conversation. That is the bare minimum to start the conversation. Yeah. I mean, as far as painting Black Lives Matter on the roads, it's like, well, how much did that cost? And couldn't you go fix potholes in black neighborhoods or street lamps or sidewalks or, you know, like mm -hmm. the list goes on and on and on. Fund a school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Buy computers for kids that don't have them in the middle of a pandemic. There's like so much that... <laughs> Figure out how happening. to, and you know what they do? Give children Wi-Fi so they can go to school from <laughs> yeah, home. Yeah, but then policymakers turn and like want to want to give you a story about how some like eleven-year-old entrepreneur, you know, black kid, like shows up and's like, I figured out a way to get everybody free internet, or like I figured out this product. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa! Why are they doing that? Oh, also, that's unpaid child labor. Yeah. Also, you just yeah. did the thing now send that, that they're kid complaining to about that has been done, right? <laughs> Or like the kid who has to sell pumpkins in yeah. his front yard so he can pay for his oh, medication. I saw that. Yeah. That's a that's a feel good story. And they're yeah. like, wow, what a little yeah, no. what a little entrepreneur. It's like, no, if you had access to free healthcare, this wouldn't be happening, and he could just yeah. sell pumpkins for fucking fun. Okay, <laughs> and like, you know, kids didn't start lemonade stands so that they could get their cancer treatment. You know what I mean? Go fund me healthcare, man. I mean, it's 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 real. It's... It's real. It's all too real. So here we've talked about so many topics, and I can say that you asked me earlier about how I've gotten involved um, as an activist, art-wise and not. The As soon as the shutdown happened and we all were uh, quickly realizing that we were in for a longer haul than we thought and this was becoming more real, uh, I began with a mutual aid group to needs match. In other words, contact people who required groceries, hygienic supplies, personal protective equipment, financial support for a variety of things. Feel free to name drop. We name drop here. Yeah. I was going to say, are you comfortable sharing that information? Oh, yeah. Capital District of New York Mutual Aid Network, baby. I'm still going. I'm still needs matching. We actually just helped uh, a domestic violence survivor get into an apartment um, after she left an abusive situation and was living in a hotel with her one-year-old child. So, you know, I mean, we're still doing a lot of that. That was one way, and I wouldn't say that it was very artistic. There were a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of phone calls and email communication. But then, you know, one thing that I started doing was actually to record myself playing a number of songs just in my home and sharing them on Facebook just to keep people... It really was twofold. One was to remind them, they're like, hey, artists are still out here, and hey, we are still doing the thing that we're going to do uh, as musician from LA Gillian Welch would say you know everything is free now and um we do it anyway if it even if it doesn't pay I really did appreciate that series you did of of music postings it was it was a highlight of those dark days during the shutdown yeah it was the when there was so much uncertainty and so much like I'm never leaving my house again and I'm like well this is what I would do if I didn't leave my house again and at least you can get some music in your life and now, I mean, yeah, it's grown. 
you know, I've had a couple of meetings with people about a clown <laughs> protest group that's, you know, still out there in the ether because there's so much to organize with. Quality for Troy is another group. We have successfully transformed uh, Barker Park, which was this park where a lot of houseless people and those struggling with substance abuse and other issues spent a lot of their time and also received uh, some aid from a group called the Street Soldiers. The city took their benches away, just took them away, and we're like, COVID, that's why. And it's like, well, all the benches in the other parks, you know, the nice parks that aren't downtown, that aren't near the businesses. The money park. Prospect Park, Freer Park, these monumental parks that are testaments to the city's greatness. The affluent parks. The uh, friends yeah. organizations. The money and, parks. Yeah, all that nonsense. Yeah. That have committees and... Uh, no, you this know. is like a small park that's part right, of right. the St. Anthony Friary, just like right downtown. It does have a little playground, and it used to have these benches. So we just started bringing chairs there and giving them away for people to sit on, which was hilarious because it became a performance piece in and of itself. Troy Foundry Theater got really involved and kind of, um, I would say, spearheaded the bringing of the chairs. It was amazing. Like, we would bring them, and we would sit in them, and people would play music or read or just sit and talk, collect stories. And then also that grew into, like, cooking food. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've cooked, like, 100 burgers and dogs for folks and just handed it out. Every day I come from the farm that I'm working on with all these vegetables and just, like, giving them away. The cops literally came in and broke the chair. Well, actually, no. First, they just threw them in the dumpster hole. And we we're like, okay, well, we'll just get them out of the dumpster and bring them back. And then they got smart. And they're like, well, we'll break them. And then we'll put them in the dumpster. And then you'll be sorry. And then we just started having people giving us chairs, right? We literally talk about art activism. You created a culture where people are like, oh, fuck the police, bring a chair. Like, they're going to have to keep doing this if they want this to stop. And now there's a free store that operates every Wednesday from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. there. You can bring things that you're willing to part with that may be of use to others every Wednesday, 2 to 5 p.m. Or you can go there and pick up things. I mean, I can't tell you. I've already had anxiety about, oh, my God, all my pants have giant holes in them. I need pants. Do I really want to go to, you know, Goodwill or Salvation Army and don't even get me started about all of the hangups I might have with either of those organizations. <laughs> and I'm definitely not buying shit new because, well, you know me, they call me rags for a reason. So I went to the free store. Right now, I'm someone who has been like helping them clean up or like organizing with them and bringing things to donate. And like there I am also a recipient. Right. So it's also important to remember that like the whole process is cyclical. And it's interesting because that really brings me around to another question I had of. When you do these things, you know, bringing in a chair, a chair can be a, a powerful activism prop because it quite literally represents where a person could be. And you talk about bringing in chairs and slowly people just started bringing you more chairs and it created this store there. So how do you notice your art activism influencing other people? people to continue that on oh i mean i mean you just said it It manifests itself so so let's take a page out of uh augusta boal like brazil's uh theater of the oppressed right right the idea of performance as participation specifically audience participation right like something that boal would do is to set a scene and then freeze the scene and be like hey anybody out there think they could do this better or like have different ideas about what they would want to see the scene turn out as an audience member with no acting training with no could just go up there and perform their own ideas and all of a sudden you could use what they were saying, what they were thinking, those real people as information to create public policy because now you actually know what people want. So one of the things that got me with Barker Park was that these chairs were meant for the occupants of the park to sit on, right? And these are like people who, you know, maybe don't normally relate to us. We don't normally relate to them. We don't really find ourselves in the same space very often. But now they sit down and they're collecting stories and we're collecting stories. We're creating community. And then that community results in like basically a mini Troy night out, like the people's Troy night out that took over that park. And one of the guys who's been like coming to that park for 25 years is like, you know what? I used to sing funk, soul, and R&B and like got up on a microphone and like sang a set and a band backed him up. I don't know that there's another situation in which that person would have had access to that experience and we would have been able to witness that talent, that creativity, that joy 
that came out of that. Now, I'm getting kind of meta, but like that person's performance, their own art, if you will, became an activist moment that inspired other people to enjoy that and dance. And now like literally you have a culture of people interrelating who didn't have a cause to relate to each other before occupying a space against the tyranny of of the mayor's office and the Troy PD and the council and so on and so forth, all because business owners were complaining that um, this bad element was uh, driving away customers in the middle of a pandemic. When you're like, what these people really need is like maybe access to a bathroom, some food and a place to sit. How, how does it ripple out? I mean, how does it, how does it inspire others? You got to show up. You got to show up. You you set the table. You put out the fucking chair. You say sit in the goddamn chair. Actually, you don't. You don't, though. That's really important. You invite them. You invite them to sit in the chair, and they always have the choice. You have to remember you always have the choice. It's, hey, I noticed you needed this chair. I have an extra chair. Would you like it? I brought a chair. It makes me think of the the... I don't think it's a, I don't think it would be technically a performance piece that's happening in DC right now. The chairs representing COVID deaths in uh, America. Uh-huh. Each chair representing uh, sort of 10 people who have passed and they will continue to add chairs every 10 people who pass away from this awful pandemic. So it's it's surreal and it's visceral in that way. Yeah. You know what that makes me think about? It's funny because we're, you know, we're going into the holidays season. We have Christmas Carol, which of course, shameless plug, Will Kemp's player is going to be doing a radio play version of that coming up. Like Tiny Tim, right? That chair gets used as an example when um, Scrooge is talking to the ghost of Christmas present, right? And asks him like, well, what do you see? And he's like, oh, you know, I see an empty chair. It's like that idea of the empty chair at the table is, um, yeah, is really evocative. And our spikes are only growing uh, going into this cold uh, winter season so all of our listeners out there we do uh, wish you to be safe take precautions over 200,000 people have empty you know have died so there's a lot of empty chairs at a lot of tables yeah a lot I think a lot more people are gonna gonna have empty chairs this year that that otherwise wouldn't wouldn't have and it also doesn't have to be that political yeah use your best judgment wear wear a mask and that's it's really not that hard it's just not absolutely wash your hands wear a mask i'd love to be able to say that i really do think that it's come down to i think there's there's something that is becoming more and more interesting for me to see and and that's like those of us that are um maybe what would be considered in this country but globally just left but like in the, in America the far left those of us that are a little bit more socialist in our leanings or you know in in media anyway there's a there's a huge push for not anti-intellectualism which is what we see in a lot of right circles i think but anti-establishment to the detriment of reasonable thinking um (laughs) i'll call it you know when like i there there are anti-maskers on the left that look at fauci's flip-flopping on masks oh evidence it's evidence that it doesn't it's bull and it doesn't you know and i think and it's it's sad it to me like i don't put any really any of this back onto everyday people this stems from kind of the inability of the people to trust the people that we put into leadership positions to lead. That's a failing that you can't put on education. You can't put on socioeconomics. It's, it's purely maybe socioeconomics is the reason it happened, but it's, it's purely a failure of, of our system that, yeah, I mean, without a doubt, we live in a system that has just harbored sure, distrust. Absolutely. For a However, long. one thing that I hope everyone can trust is that we are infinitely, infinitely grateful for for Rags coming out today and being on the podcast with us and having this conversation and 
going down all the rabbit holes because it led to some really interesting conversation. And I think this show is not just about, hey, we want to talk about this topic, but it's also about kind of how we as as individuals process this information, talk about this information, and then how it comes out in our art and in our work. So thank you so much for coming and and doing this with us. And I think now we get to have a little fun. I think we get to have a little fun with our guest. Does that bring us to our final moment? Oh, good. Oh, wow. That was it. That was it. This is the denouement. Oh, my God. It's, it looks like that was a really nice wrap up point. Like you said, we could talk for hours and hours, partially because we're family. Well, I answered all of your, I have all of your questions i have so much more uh we maybe uh we do a second part to this episode yes we're gonna do that we also have a we're gonna do something called a midweek quickie that i think we could dedicate to more of this for those listeners at home rags has pulled out his guitar he's going to do something for us not sure what it is and i think that's the point so rags whenever you are comfortable to to take it away take it away Just up there in Lansenburg came the strangest thing I ever heard. A man who built a house of God filled up with guns. You find that odd? Men of war for the Prince of Peace? Well, sure as hell, I'd think that Jesus would be rolling in his grave. But they rolled that stone away, and what they find there? Nothing. That's right. And that's about all I believe from the mouth, the mouth of John Kalidas, pastor of the Independent Grace Baptist Church. Nothing. If you want to get with Jesus, don't be like John Kalidas, the man who lies with the Bible in his hands. And I think that he believes it, saving souls and begging freely. But here's the thing you've got to understand AR-15s are not the way to heaven And heaven ain't a place where shooters dwell If it's in you to murder, better read your Bible further Or else pull that trigger by the devil's hand Your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore nor walking up and touching ham outside the church front door. Jesus saves, perhaps that's true, and y'all can sing till y'all turn blue. But he's preaching hate while you're sitting in that pew. And pew pew, go that gun. And you might just think that's fun. Quoting verse you might have heard on Sunday too. Oh, oh, oh. It's about all that pastor's learning. He's bringing you burning saying blacks are cursed with jews and muslims too actual quote he mentions killing turks well i think that's quite the jerk something ain't quite right with john and that's the truth if you want to be like jesus don't follow john Kalidas. he surely will mislead us man who cries for greeks down on his knees believe what all that pleases but the sure ain't no white Jesus the good Lord has a different plan for you white supremacy sure as hell no place to be Grace Baptist Church we pray you change your tune though you may drive folks to hospitals and believe in the impossible it's possible you're wrong and wrong for me and you if you want to be like Jesus don't follow John Kalidas man who lies with the Bible in his hands it's sad that he believes it waving guns and begging freedom that's the thing you've got to understand In his hand. Thank you so much. 
Now you've completely alienated any possibility of anyone from that church listening to this podcast ever again, which I'm completely comfortable with. Thank you. <laughs> that was beautiful. It sounds like we've lost, what, 15 listeners? One more time, we'd like to thank Ragliacci Rags, Sir Christoph Di Maria, for coming on to the show. And if you would like to follow up on where you can see Ragliacci performing, please hit up his socials that you'll be able to find in the show description. All right. That brings us to the end of our episode. And I know Shane has some listener engagement for us. So Shane, what do you have? I think I have a good one this week. If you were to have rags, write a protest song for you. What would that protest song be? Oh, I know what it would be. It would be about pumpkin spice. They put that crap in everything. And it wasn't even the end of August. Mike, 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 Mike. Wow. Okay. Uh, Well, I don't know if I agree with your positioning on pumpkin spice lattes. I do know that I want to hear from our audience. Okay. Yeah. And you can find our social links in the show description. You can find us at Twitter at ActListPod. That's A-C-T-L-I-S-T-P-O-D. And if you're on Facebook, you can check us out at facebook.com slash ActiveListenersPod and join in the conversation. Peace. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating. And if you really like what you hear and you'd like to support us, go to patreon.com slash active listeners pod and become a patron. Our theme music was created by Remona. Thanks so much for listening.